Welcome everyone to the B2B C-Suite Marketing Perspectives Podcast. I'm Steve McDonald, your host. And today we've got a really interesting conversation because we're going to talk about this trend with B2B buyers in the goal to have, they want more and more of a self-serve buying experience. It's a growing rate. The percentages is growing and growing in terms of how many of them don't actually want to connect with an actual salesperson. And Jonathan Simons here is the CMO, two-time CMO, seven years of experience as a CMO. But importantly, you're working right now with a company, MinIO, and you're 100% inbound. So there is no sales department. And so you've been forced to make decisions and start doing business that is equated to where all B2B CMOs are needing to think through in a very, very deep way in terms of how are they adapting to the trends in the marketplace. So Jonathan, if you don't mind, maybe expand just a little bit on your background in MinIO, and then we'll kind of jump in and start with this 100% inbound buying uh, process that you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Steve. I'm a big fan of the podcast and have watched a lot of them um, over the last year or so and uh, really enjoy it. Um, you know, my path to the kind of the, the CMO role is a little bit non-traditional. I started my career in politics. Uh, I worked in the State Department for Secretary Baker and Legislative Affairs um, way back uh, then. Um, and then I actually ended up going to, to business school where I spent a lot of my time taking finance and accounting classes. Um, I was doing very well in the marketing classes and I was spending a lot of money to go to business school. So I figured I would spend that on the things that I wasn't very good at. Um, and uh, that led to a very short stint in finance. But, I, you know, my passion was really in marketing and I came back to that um, pretty shortly thereafter and uh, been in marketing ever since. So that's sort of my path here. Um, our, you know, journey at MinIO is actually particularly interesting, right? So as you mentioned earlier, we're 100% inbound. Uh, we don't have any commission salespeople at MinIO. And it's a great way to build a company because it's very, very efficient. Um, but it's not necessarily for everybody. I mean, we were able to do it um, because ultimately, philosophically, we were always going to be open source. And so that really created no friction between you know, our audience and adopting our product. And so that open source model was very, very helpful from that regard. Um, the other part was that we were going to market primarily through developers to start with. And, you know, the Gartner stat says that I think 75% of B2B buyers don't really want to talk to a salesperson. Well, I can guarantee you with developers, that number is like 99%. Um, so what we needed to do was we needed to build a content machine um, that allowed them to really learn the MinIO way. And learning the MinIO way um, allowed them to come across that buying journey themselves to adopt our product to evangelize it internally, and then ultimately to convert to a commercial customer down the road um, for that organization. And so that's really what we've done. Um, it's product-led, it's developer-focused, um, and it's inbound-driven. But it's a, it is the new model. Um, and again, it's a very efficient way to build a business. And it's one of the reasons that MinIO's been able to be profitable um, and to kind of achieve the valuation that it has. So what I want to explore right away here is one of the, your most important ICPs is the C-suite, right? So this isn't an inbound only model that is for a developer. Um, 
because many, many companies that are watching here are saying, well, I've got, you know, ICPs that are much higher up in terms of their seniority in the company. They're harder to get to, right? There's buying committees. There's all kinds of things that come into the play when you get up into the C-suite level. Yet you still have a hundred percent, you know, inbound process. So can you explain that difference a little bit in terms of how you think about inbound when you're you're moving upstream from a developer to the C-suite? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a challenge that that we've absolutely had to uh, uh, tackle. Um, and ultimately, the way we see the world is we see users and buyers. Um, and buyers are in the C-suite, users are on the developer side. And we have to develop content for that entire journey. And so what we're trying to do is basically create thought leadership pieces um, that get at sort of that, that kernel of truth, that creative tension um, that allows us to engage the C-suite uh, in addition to developers to the point where they, you know, they've heard about MinIO in their organization because they, they know it's getting run, but it allows them to engage and become more expert and more familiar and become brand advocates themselves. And so we're looking to, to cover that entire spectrum. Um, and it's a, it's a delicate balance, um, but it's one that we think that we're generally achieving at this point. Now, because this is such a staggering number, uh, you know, obviously 100% uh, inbound process requires then quite a bit of content, right? And all B2B marketers know that we need to create tons of content, right? But give us an understanding of the kind of consumption, like kind of visitations you get to your website, the kind of consumption, and then therefore the kind of cadence and refreshed uh, content that you need to be producing on a regular basis. Yeah. So I just ran some numbers. I mean, just from the last year, um, we did a little over 1.1 million uniques um, to, to men.io. Um, and that, in, that includes our documentation, that includes the core website, that includes, that does not include the YouTube channels. Um, but that, um, that resulted in, I think, 11 and 11.1 million page views. Um, so an extraordinary uh, amount of page views um, for, you know, again, a company in the storage business um, selling to, to B2B. So it's a very specific uh, type of audience. And that means that you do have to create a lot of content, right? Because you have to keep content fresh for that audience and you have to continue to find different vehicles for your messages. Um, and those vehicles can't be the same. I mean, right? Not everything, um, you know, is a, not everything looks like a nail, so you have to use a hammer every single time, right? We're looking for different ways to approach that. Um, but to give you a sense of what that looks like from a content perspective, just in October, we did 21 blog posts. We did six videos. We did one animated video. We had two new web pages. We did half dozen ABM pages specifically for customers that we're targeting. Uh, and again, covering that whole buying persona. Um, and that doesn't include bylines. Or it doesn't include podcasts. It doesn't include even just the new documentation that we put out there. So that gives you a sense of sort of how focused we are on this engine of content um, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And you had mentioned something that we were just talking about right before we uh, hit the record button, is that the number of different channels that you're also filling, that, you know, one blog post is, you know, that's just the start of the journey you had mentioned. Can you give us just kind of a, without revealing a secret sauce or anything, but yeah, how many different channels are are you actually putting the same piece of content into in order for it to be 
the kind of thing that it's available and accessible for everyone. Yeah, we, we sort of joke that every single piece of content that we create should be able to live its best life and, and its fullest life. So to, to do that, um, you know, yes, the, the blog or the YouTube channel is the, is the starting point, right? And then you have your kind of standard social and in our space, it really is X and LinkedIn are the two primaries. But there's probably another four to six channels beyond that um, that we intentionally fill or resyndicate or um, you know, try to rebyline almost every single piece of content for, because we're trying to reach the broadest audience possible to teach them about the men, you know, the men I way. Now, again, when I say the broadest audience possible, I don't mean everybody, uh, but I mean the people that we care about. And so we're very intentional about finding those sort of, some people would consider them niche, um, places to resyndicate our content. But they are very, very powerful for us because we end up being the best performing content on those sites because those are our people. So you had mentioned in order to create all this content, right? And 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 actually have it have it work, right? It's not it's not the quantity of content, it's the quality of the content. And so you talked about what we all know, we're trained on as a marketing basic 101, is that you really have to know your audience, right? But your goal that you talked about was creating content, knowing that audience more than anyone else, so that it's a perpetual seller, that that content is a perpetual seller. And the one bit of context I'll put around that is that in a world where all B2B marketers are going more and more to this, you know, self-serve buying, marketing is playing and now you're in it, right? 100% inbound. So Marketing plays then in your world, the sales process, sales and marketing. And so everybody that's listening here is thinking, okay, I need to get more and more inbound, right? Because I need to get earlier in the buyer's journey. I need to get conversations that are happening earlier. So this, this notion of a perpetual seller in the self-serve buying world, what is your thought on that? You had mentioned that it has to be perpetually selling. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very interesting challenge. And again, without a sales team and, um, without any friction between our, you know, the end user and the adoption of our product. Um, and because object storage is a very horizontal use case by design, um, we'll find ourselves pretty much everywhere, right? So we're software defined. It's not appliance. You know, you can just download it and run it. It'll run on your laptop. It'll run in the lab and so forth. Because of that, um, our buyers and the people who adopt our product over time um, are everywhere. And so we need to be able to create content that enables them to move themselves down that buying process by themselves whenever and however they want. So uh, an interesting stat is, you know, MinIO's busiest time uh, on its website for documentation, for just pricing calculators, for pricing page and other content on blog. Uh, is between one and three in the morning. And we're based in California. You would think that it would be somewhere in the middle of the day in the United States, but it's not. It's really the end of the day in Asia. It's the beginning of the day in Europe. And that's two thirds of the planet. That's therefore it's going to be the busiest time um, just by, you know, by making sense in terms of looking at the logic of it all. And so we're trying to create everything they need to be able to serve themselves, to get smart on the MinIO way to understand the concept is such that when they do come inbound, right, they have all the information. 
right? And there's a lot of stats that, and I just saw something on um, from some research from Sixth Sense that talked about by the time they do reach out, they've done 70% or more of their work. And so we want to actually drive that number even higher such that when they reach out, we are their first touch and probably their only touch because they've already made that selection. They've already downloaded the software. They've already run it. Um, they understand what the capability set are, and they may have some question about the buying process or some question about, you know, getting past a POC phase in their own mind. Um, but that's the first time we'll see them, but we want to give them tools to get there, um, before they even come inbound. Now, at some point they are going to talk to, um, you know, somebody on the business team, um, but it's not going to be a commissioned salesperson who's out there knocking on their door. So you mentioned something in there, you mentioned frictionless frictionless, um, but there is friction in terms of, there is competition to MinIO, right? So there are other choices. You know, clearly, if there wasn't a MinIO in this world, the developer world would still work, right? Now, you've got a unique solution that you're bringing to the, to the audience, but in terms of frictionless, you know, you had mentioned uh, earlier that you're trying to move into a bluer ocean. And for anybody that hasn't read the book, they should, right? The Blue Ocean Strategy, right? And where Red Ocean is read from the battle of competition, where the Blue Ocean is where you redefine the industry, you redefine the marketplace, and therefore you redefine bluer waters, bluer ocean, right? So part of that lack of friction is your ability to redefine. And you and I had talked about reframing the problem, right? reframing then the opportunity and that you're delivering that through content, thought leadership content. Can you just kind of, that reframing of the conversation and what's happening, can you tell us a little bit about that and how important that is then to your overall content strategy? Yeah. So um, we're big fans of Blue Ocean strategy here as well. And frankly, as a challenger brand, it was almost an imperative for us because the storage industry is an immensely crowded industry and there's plenty of giants in it. Um, our primary competitor is AWS S3. Uh, I don't think you can choose a bigger competitor coming out of the gate than uh, AWS S3, but there's also IBMs in there and then there's NetApps in there and there's pure storage in there. There's, you know, there's Dell EMC. There's, you know, there's a, dozens of, of major players. So, you know, from the get-go, we needed to carve out a content strategy and a use case strategy that allowed us to operate in uncontested space. And so we started to focus from a content perspective on those things that allowed us to climb the ladder out of sort of this kind of very messy mosh pit of, of storage competitors. One of the areas that we did that was performance benchmarks. Performance benchmarks allowed us to have the credibility to have discussions around different types of use cases that heretofore you couldn't use for uh, object storage. Things like analytics, things like AI, things like machine learning, um, as opposed to the standard archival stuff. And so we built content that allowed us to sort of climb that ladder. Then we talked about things like being the cloud native and the, the cloud operating model. And again, staking out space where by the time we had done defining, you know, these requirements for this work, um, things like being cl truly cloud native, um, when you were done with that list, there were really only two 
competitors left standing, and it was MinIO and AWS S3. So we basically eliminated everybody else through content by saying, here are the first principles, and you're going to agree with the first principles because you are you know, in a technical role or you are a developer. And then by the time you're done agreeing with that, you're going to realize that none of the other vendors in the space can actually serve that need for you. Um, and so that allowed us to basically carve out this uncontested space and operate in it for uh, a long time. Um, now we're finding more and more um, of those competitors have adopted that same messaging. But the nice thing is, is their products haven't been able to <laughs> meet the messaging. So um, it's, uh, that's actually worked out well. We wanted them to come on our turf to fight the battle that we wanted to fight. And again, content was the driver of framing that conversation. I'd probably say one other thing there is that, you know, a lot of that comes through what we call thought leadership content and thought leadership content can be both for buyers and for users. And we talked about that a little earlier in the podcast, but so what is thought leadership? I mean, I think the, the, the thing that defines thought leadership content is this, there's a, there's a nugget of contrarian in it. It's not oppositional, right? It's not, it can be controversial, but it's not intentionally so. Right? There is this concept of creative tension uh, that's in there. It has to be educational. Right, There has to be something that's given um, from, a, from a thought leadership perspective. Uh, it has to be informative. It has to be defensible. But it also has to be familiar. Right, You can't go too far. Right, There has to be a bridge from, you know, here's where I operate today you know, as, as, a, as a buyer. And here's where this you know, future state that I want to get to. But it can't be so far that you can't actually get there. It has to be close enough where there's a bridge that can be built with logic and with content and with, um, you know, a, a fairly good argument. There. You know, the last three minutes of what you've just said, I think, is worth an MBA's worth of learning here because every single company out there is trying to redefine the market in a way that positions them in a unique way, right? As the best solution, right? And what you just went through here is, you know, you defined the first principles that you you walked people along. Yeah, I, I agree with this, right? Like you have, and this is how we work with our clients too. And, and, and I'm, I'm seeing this, you've got a unique point of view, right? That's got that little bit of healthy dose of controversy in there. And then you say, because of that point of view, we believe in this, in this, in this. And you walk them through that. And also, the more that you can get outside validation from your audience that they agree with that, right? When you say it, it means this. When your audience, your ICP says, I agree with that, it means this, right? Because you're the seller, right? So their peer community agreeing with these first principles, right, is tremendous for you. But that is reframing the conversation, right? In a very healthy way. And that's what gets, you know, thought leadership content noticed is it raises the eyebrow a little bit. It says, you know what? That's interesting. I haven't quite thought about it that way. That makes good sense, right? And you take them along this journey, the buyer's journey. So this to me has been incredible in terms of what everybody needs to do with their thought leadership is reframe the conversation in a very healthy way so that you bring the buying base along with you, right? And that's difficult 
that's really hard to do. And you did it in a, in a world that is more, I was in storage in the eighties. I worked with Seagate technology and, you know, hard drives and things like that. And like, there is nothing more competitive than the storage industry. Right? So if you can do this in the storage industry, then the takeaway here is anybody in your industry, you can do it too. But what would your, what would your recommendation be to the CMO that's listening to this right now saying, absolutely, I want bluer ocean. I want to reframe the conversation. Like, how do they start on this process? How does, how should they start thinking about this? So I think you ultimately to, to move somebody from the status quo, which is really what you're trying to do with thought leadership content, you can't be writing the status quo. So we talked about this concept of creative tension. Um, and I think the other thing that you mentioned, which is a really important point, is that you need to move their perspective and reframe the conversation. And it doesn't have to be a huge amount. Think about if you lie on the floor and you stare up at the ceiling, or then you get up on a stool. Like you haven't changed your worldview that much, but you have certainly changed your perspective enough to look at your room differently than you did previously. And that's what you're trying to do. So again, you're not trying to radically transform them in a single piece of content. What you are trying to do is get them to think differently such that they might consider themselves, you know what? My incumbent solution doesn't do this and I have a need for this. And so that's a fairly generalizable set of frameworks. Um, one of the ones that we use here, um, and I challenge, um, you know, the people on, on our side to think about is this concept of defensible, or differentiated first, defensible seconds, and then third is translatable. And so what do I mean by that? Well, differentiated gets at this concept of kind of reframing the problem. What's slightly different about this, right? It could be object storage that's fast. It could be object storage that can run on a drone. It could be any thing that basically is differentiated and gets you thinking about the problem differently. The second is, if you're going to try to move somebody, you have to be defensible. And so you have to build content that is ironclad, right? Because you're going to have other people in a crowded industry that attack those principles and you need to be able to defend them. So they should be able to repeat the experiments that you showed for these benchmarks. They should be able to repeat what it is that you've shown them that they can do now. So that defensibility is a big piece of it. And then the third piece is this concept of being translatable. And so that means really being accessible. So, you know, as we said, talked about earlier, you know, Seth Godin says, you know, shun the non-believers. Well, you want to basically have an audience that's wide enough to consume what it is, but no wider than that, right? And so you want it to be accessible. You don't want it to be so narrow that you can count it on two hands, but you want it to be narrow enough that they know it's for them. And if you can achieve all three of those things with your thought leadership content, you're going to be able to create better content because it's going to, those things are hard to do. Um, there is, you know, there's tension there. Um, and, but you can do that. You know, so much conversation here about reframing the conversation, right. And the use of content to do that. If I were just to ask you, you know, question of, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how important is content to you and MinIO in terms of the overall growth and success of the company? Where one, it's not important at all. Ten, it's vital to the growth and success of the company. How would you rate it and, and why? Can I, can I say it's a 14? I mean, you, it, you, you can. It's, it, 
It's your it answer. Really is. So um, ultimately, and I learned this pretty early in my career, um, when I first sort of had my first really senior role in the marketing department, um, that you know, content is the engine of value creation. Um, and so, and, and, and in the business that I'm in today, content is the engine for the entire pipeline, right? So, um, you know, that's a, it's a very different set of responsibilities, but it is the engine of value creation. Yes, there are things like messaging and there's things like SEO and there's things, but these are all tactics. At the end of the day, your content strategy will define how people perceive you. It is the brand, right? That's the brand that they interact with on, on a day-to-day basis. Your voice, um, you know, your ability not to be um, over the top um, with, your, with what you say because you want to basically cultivate that voice for the audience that you're talking to. Um, you want to be confident but not arrogant. You know, you want to be authoritative um, but not overly opinionated. All of these things play into you know, your brand interactions. So there is, I, I just want to get your uh, take on this. It's a, it's a one-liner. It's from a B2B CMO, three-time B2B CMO. And when she talks to her CEO and her CRO and, and how she explains the brand, she literally says, today's brand is tomorrow's demand. I What's your... It's, it's a great, it's a great way to think about it. I mean, you know, as they taught us in business school, you know, a brand is a promise, right? Um, and your ability to live up to that promise, um, is really, really important. You know, they say, you know, trust, um, uh, trust is, arrives on foot and departs on a horse. I mean, that concept that you're building this trust, um, because that trust will be the thing that they buy later. They're buying trust. Um, they're buying a belief that you're going to deliver on what it is that you can't, what you say you're going to. Um, and I think, you know, I be, I'm very fortunate in that the leadership of Minio, AB, and Grima are building a long-term brand. And so they've given me the freedom to, to do these things intentionally. Um, it is not, uh, I, I've never been pushed to do things in a way that doesn't make sense. Like we've always had conversations about what's the right way to do this. Um, and so it, it's, been a, it's been a great partnership. You know, two things came to mind when you're, you're talking about the brand and, you know, there's uh, a survey uh, that came out and, and basically it said a sense of connection to the company is as important as what the company itself does. That's power of brain, right? So, um, but you have this, you, you talked about at the very beginning, this kind of a unique background where you actually took a lot of accounting classes. You actually went to work at PricewaterhouseCoopers, right? At the beginning. So this talk of thought leadership, this talk about building expertise, building brand, you also have to be very data-driven as a, as a chief marketing officer today. How do you think about in terms of the numbers and the support for building that brand, reframing the conversation, right? Everything that we've been talking about here today, how do you think about it in terms of a numbers game, right? In, in attribution and return on investment? Yeah, it's interesting that there are, 
very few parallels for me uh, in this role. Um, you know, maybe JFrog or Atlassian um, would be two where they really started out um, and people were, it's really, it was an inbound model driven uh, approach. And then ultimately they did become a little bit more traditional in terms of their sales focus. Um, but there's not a lot, but that was, you know, half a decade ago or, or longer. Um, so there aren't a lot of, you know, in the market parallels that I can go look at for, for KPIs and things like that. Um, so we've really built a lot of our own metrics um, around what does community adoption look like? What does conversion look like for that? Um, how are we, we built a very sophisticated listening system so that we know sort of who's using us and in what capacities, um, particularly for large enterprises, because that's where we want to focus our content from an ABM perspective is the people who are adopting us in mass, right? Where we can see that we have become the standard uh, in that, in that developer cadre. And then we want to, you know, elevate that conversation up to the C-suite. Um, and so, um, you know, we're also starting to work a little bit C-suite down, uh, as well and try to explain to them, this is the way, but so we've, we look at a lot of data, um, and I look at a lot of data. I'm in a spreadsheet, probably two hours a day, um, mm. to be honest with you. And, uh, because that allows me to really have a good grasp of where we need to focus our content strategy because content strategy is coming out of where we see an interest, what use cases, like, what do we, what should be writing about, right? If I'm looking at not only uh, our CRM, which is HubSpot and saying, all right, what closed and what was the use case there? But I'm also looking out and if I can see it in, you know, our data, um, you know, where, what pockets of usage and then what kind of use cases, we're always looking at that because it informs the content strategy. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things is we all have our educated guesses on what the best content will be, the best themes, you know, the discussions we can have around particular topics. But looking at the data, right, you know, this is, you know, something that marketers have learned a long time ago. We have to be testing everything that we do. And basically that data is the test data, right? Because I'm sure you've, you've gone through and you'd have assumptions on, we need to go down this direction, right? And it just didn't pan out in terms of the engagement, right? Some that we didn't think would work great really did. And that's what we dive down deeper on. And, and we, you know, we continue, we create theme that goes behind that content. I think that's and this, an area of risk that I see for a lot of my fellow CMOs, particularly in the tech business, is that, um, you know, you have very, very strong technical founders and there is a tendency for egocentric distribution error um, because they're, they are developers, they're surrounded by developers and that audience is something that they know inherently, but it doesn't necessarily mean that all of their instincts are right. So you have to run these experiments. You have to look at the data to make those determinations. Um, and one of the great things about developers and developer founders and technical founders is they will be swayed by data. Um, so you come back and say, by the way, um, I know you, you know, thought this was what it was, but turns out this is what it actually is. And here's the data to support that. I, I really wish we could, could just keep going on another hour or so, but what I want to do is because there's been so much that we've covered so far, if you could just boil it down to what is the one big takeaway that you would have for the B2B 
SEMO audience that is watching this right now that you'd want them to leave with and remember? Well, I think, um, you know, Seth Godin also said another great quote that, you know, marketing is this generous act of helping somebody solve a problem and, and it's their problem. That's really from a content perspective, um, what we're trying to do here. And if you think about it from their perspective, really not your perspective, but their perspective, what do they need to be better at their jobs? You're going to be a much better marketer than if you say, I'm going to talk to you about my company's speeds, feeds, features, and, and so forth. And you think about what they want to consume. You're going to be more successful in this. Um, and we, that's a, that's an empathy mentality that you have to have, um, to be successful in content marketing. Otherwise you're talking to, as opposed to having a conversation. That makes perfect sense. And everything, by the way, has made perfect sense. But I know there's been some eyebrows lifted, <laughs> right? Uh, and probably some follow-on questions. If, if people wanted to get a hold of you and, and ask you a question, would it be appropriate that we gave uh, a link to your profile on LinkedIn? Would that of be course, a good way to get a hold of you? Yeah. And listen, one of the great things about joining a startup is it's your first name and then the name of the company. <laughs> so it's Jonathan at Min.io. Min and um, you, you can email me there if you want to. Fantastic. Well, Jonathan, thank you for coming on. Um, I, I actually feel like we've gone through an MBA course here <laughs> today, all in about a half an hour's time. So thank you very much for sharing all your insights. Absolutely. It's been fantastic.